Well, I do encourage you to open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 5. This is week number two of our mini-series, Prophet, Priest, and King. Uh, As we prepare for Easter, we are taking time to explore the person and work of Jesus, and we're doing that by looking at looking at his offices of prophet, priest, and king. We began last week with a look at what it means to say that Jesus is our prophet. And this week, we're going to spend our time exploring what it means to say that Jesus is our priest. So I asked you to open to Hebrews chapter 5. Just know in advance that we will be flipping around a little bit within the book of Hebrews this morning. But as we did last week, I'm going to begin by looking at some of the questions with you, or we're going to begin by looking at some of the questions from the Westminster Children's Catechism as they relate to prophet, priest, and king. Parents, let me encourage you. I would encourage you to work with your kids, help them to learn these simple but profound truths. Uh, But also, for every one of you, young or old, I do encourage you to meditate and to learn these simple and profound truths. So as I did last week, I'm putting both the question and the answer on the screen for you. Maybe by next week, since I know you'll all have these memorized, I might just put the questions up there. But let's just kind of work our way through this. Firstly, what offices has Christ? Christ has three offices. What are they? The offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king. How is Christ a prophet? Because he teaches us the will of God. How is Christ a priest? Because he died for our sins and pleads with God for us. How is Christ a king? Because he rules over us and defends us. And then the why questions. Why do you need Christ as a prophet? Because I'm ignorant. Why do you need Christ as a priest? Because I am guilty. Why do you need Christ as a king? Because I am weak and helpless. So we are going to focus today on the priest part of the equation. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our priest? And as I said, we're doing things a little bit differently in that we're not just anchoring ourselves in one passage, but looking at a number of passages within the book of Hebrews. Now, the Gospels show us the priestly work of Jesus, but it's only in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is referred to by the title of a priest or a high priest, specifically our high priest. And so we're going to do a bit of a whirlwind tour of the book of Hebrews this morning. We're going to start in Hebrews chapter 5, and we're going to start by trying to answer the question, what is a priest? And do we need one? Now, I know that's actually two questions, but I want to tackle them together. I'm not sure what comes to mind for you when you hear the word priest. Lots of different things may uh, come to mind. You might picture someone who maybe looks rather somber or austere. They wear special robes or clothing. Maybe they perform uh, religious rituals or ceremonies. Your first thought when you hear the word priest might actually be connected to something negative. Maybe you think of the sexual abuses and scandals that have plagued the Roman Catholic Church and its priesthood. The truth is lots of people have negative pictures in mind when they hear the word priest. 
It either conjures up an image of one who is too holy and aloof or one who is not as holy as he ought to be or pretends to be. But contemporary ideas aside, we want to take a look at the role of a priest as it is outlined in the Bible. Now, if you read through the Old Testament, you will find that there are lots of descriptions for what priests do. But the closest we come to a job description for a priest is found in the New Testament, and it's found here in Hebrews chapter 5. Verses 1 to 3 of Hebrews 5 say this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So the first verse tells us that what the priest does is he acts on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, this ties in with what I said last week, that a priest, that both the prophet and the priest act as intermediaries or mediators between God and man. To simplify it, we said that the prophet speaks to people on behalf of God and the priest speaks to God on behalf of people. The primary function of a priest is actually that role of a mediator. Now, we know what a mediator looks like in our earthly relationships. A mediator is appointed to bring two sides together. And as a way to illustrate that, we might think of of this description from a politician who said, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to travel to the demilitarized zone in between North and South Korea. If you've seen pictures, you know that there are these small buildings called Conference Row that straddle the border, 50% in the North and 50% in the South. In these bu- it was in these buildings that the original armistice was signed and where meetings and negotiations are largely held today. Now, as you look at that picture, you'll see that there are five buildings pictured there, five huts. It's actually in the center building where the two warring sides of North and South are brought to the table. And there is a conference table within that building that is literally divided down the middle. If you sit on one side of the table, it's because you represent the interests of North Korea. If you sit on the other side of that table, it's because you represent the interests of South Korea. Now, if you are familiar with the Old Testament and the background of the Old Testament, then you will understand that this is how the tabernacle and then later the temple was designed to work. It was in the tabernacle or temple where the two sides, God and man, were brought together. And it was the priests who functioned as mediators between God and the people. In the language of Hebrews, the priest would offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. See, what people understood at the time is that there is a distance between God and man, not just a physical distance, but a distance because of God's holiness and our sin. And the only way you as an individual could relate to God was through the priest as a sort of go-between. He would offer gifts and sacrifices on your behalf. Now, if you're accustomed to viewing God as a buddy or viewing him in a really casual way, 
then you won't really understand the distance part of this, the gulf that separates us from God. But when you encounter God in his power and in his majesty or get a glimpse of his holiness, then what you want is a mediated encounter. Listen to what happened when the Israelites had an encounter with God after Moses was given the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 20, it says this. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. They were essentially saying, look, we can't handle a direct encounter with God. You be a mediator between us and him. Now, they weren't alone in that. When God appeared to the prophet Isaiah in a vision, Isaiah's first words were, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I can't handle just this direct encounter with God. But the need for a mediated encounter with God actually runs both ways. So the people pleaded with Moses for him to mediate God's presence to them. And Moses also needed to plead with God on behalf of the people. So sometime after God gave the Ten Commandments, Aaron made a golden calf and the people bowed down and worshipped it. And God's anger burned white hot against them. And here's what we read in Exodus 32. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the star and and all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. See, we need that. We need someone who will stand in the gap between us and God. We need a mediator. And that was the primary function a priest was supposed to fulfill. They were to act on behalf of men in relation to God. But having said that, the priestly system of the Old Testament could never quite bridge the gap. Now, it did it in a temporary sense or in a shadow kind of way, but not in any kind of ultimate way. Now, there were lots of reasons for that. One of those reasons is highlighted here in Hebrews 5. Those verses, again, tell us, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. But then it says, He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. See, part of the problem with the priesthood was the priests. They were sinners just like 
us. They too needed a mediator. They couldn't approach God without undergoing a ceremonial cleansing, wearing special clothing, and offering a sacrifice to God for their own sins. So we do need a mediator, a priest. But not just any mediator or priest will do. So enter Jesus. Jesus is the priest we need. Jesus is the mediator we need. In fact, Jesus is now the only mediator we need between us and God. The New Testament says it this way, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So how did Jesus fulfill that role? Well, he acted on behalf of men in relation to God. How did he do that? By offering the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so with the time we have left, I want to highlight four reasons why Jesus is the priest we need. And the first one is because he understands and helps us. Now, we see this at the end of chapter 4. So just flip back a page. And the concluding verses, verses 14 to 18 of chapter 4, it was in our call to worship this morning, but those verses say this. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, there's so much good news in those verses. And we're just skimming the surface of them this morning. Jesus, it tells us, sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, the Stoics believe that the primary attribute of God was apatheia. It's the word we get our word apathy from. It's the inability to feel anything at all. They surmise that if God could feel, then he could be controlled by others and therefore he would be less than God. Now, the Jews had a more accurate picture from God, but it wasn't complete. Jesus shows us the depth of God's sympathy for us. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect. He was born in a human body. He walked like a baby before he walked like a man. He was subject to all the limitations that you and I are subject to. He had a real human body, mind, and emotions. Even more than that, he faced the same temptations that you and I face. One who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. And yet he has sympathy for us. He has sympathy for our weaknesses. So what does that look like? What does it mean to say that Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses? Well, I barely know anything about music. But from what I understand, if you place two tuning forks of the same pitch in position for sounding and one of them is set in vibration, the other one will take up the vibrations in sympathy. The first fork is the generator of a sound. The second is a resonator. Apparently, you can do this with two pianos in the same room as well. 
It's known as sympathetic resonance. And this is what it means to say that Jesus sympathizes with us. Jesus doesn't just know what we feel when we experience temptation intellectually. He has felt it. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Now, there's a sense in which every priest could say that. This is why they had to offer sacrifices first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people. But this is where Jesus is different. He overcame temptation. He never once yielded to it or gave into it. And it's for that reason, when we draw near to the throne of grace, we don't just find mercy as great as that is. It says we find grace to help us in time of need or in our time of need. Now, we need mercy for our past failures. But we need grace for our present and future temptations. And this means we're not actually helpless victims when it comes to temptation. Jesus, or in Jesus, we're actually given the resources, the help to overcome temptation. As our priest, Jesus understands and helps us. Second reason why Jesus is the priest we need is because he intercedes for us. We see this in Hebrews chapter 7, so flip ahead a couple of pages. We're going to look at verses 23 to 25. And those verses say this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, that idea that Jesus prays for us, that he intercedes for us, can seem a little bit abstract. So what does it look like? How does, he, how does that help us? Well, maybe the first thing we should note about that is, is that this is a thoroughly biblical idea. The truth that Jesus prays for us or pleads for us is something that we're told multiple times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 8. He said, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. This is what Jesus is doing at God's right hand. He's interceding for you and for me. In a similar way, the Apostle John said this, my little children. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, an advocate is someone who advocates on our behalf. The word is sometimes used in a legal context. The advocate is like a lawyer who pleads our case before the judge. This is part of what it means to say that Jesus intercedes for us. He pleads with God on our behalf. He is our mediator. Before God. But that might still leave us with some questions. I mean, our salvation is already secured because of Jesus' death on our behalf. So when Jesus is interceding for us, what is he saying? What is he praying? Well, I think the example of the way Jesus prayed for Peter gives us a helpful picture. Just before his arrest, Jesus said this to Peter. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. The way Jesus prayed for Peter is maybe different than the way we pray for ourselves or we pray for others. I mean, I'm pretty sure Jesus' prayers don't sound like, Dear God, I just pray for Aunt Edna's big toe, that it would feel better. Jesus didn't pray that Satan would leave Peter alone. He didn't pray that Peter would have an easy life, free from all problems and troubles. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail in the midst of a trial. And I suspect that that's a prayer Jesus offers on our behalf as well. Notice, it's not that Peter won't experience the trial, but that his faith won't fail in the midst of it. Now, we all face trials. Sometimes when we're going through a trial, we're comforted when a friend will say to us, you know what, I'm praying for you in the midst of this. That can be a comforting thing to know. But how much more comforting is it to know that Jesus is actually praying for us? He's interceding with the Father on our behalf. Third reason we need Jesus as our priest is because he paid for our guilt in a way no human effort ever could. Or because he saves us in a way no human effort ever could. Under the Old Testament sacrificial system, the way to deal with your guilt was to make an offering to God through the work of a priest. You would bring a lamb or a bull without blemish to the priest. The priest would slaughter it. He would sprinkle some of its blood on the altar, and then he would offer it as a sacrifice. The animal served as your stand-in or representative. Doing this was the way to make atonement for your sins. Now, I think when we hear that or when we read that, it, it kind of seems foreign and antiquated to us. But the truth is, we've never actually been able to move very far past this idea of making atonement for our sins. That we need to do something to deal with the guilt of our past. That there needs to be some kind of payment for what we've done. Now, I think things have changed since then. But when I was in grade eight... I had to write a lot of lines, right? I don't know if you got this ever in your academic career, but the way it would work was, you know, the the teacher would say, look, you have to stay after school today and you need to write a hundred lines on the chalkboard, right? I will not be late for class. Or when you go home tonight, you need to sit down and you need to write 500 lines. I will not talk in class. And then when your work was finished, you would hand it to the teacher as a way to sort of appease their wrath as a way to make atonement for what you had done. Now, it was actually pretty ineffective, but we actually come up with all sorts of different ways to try to atone for our transgressions. Some time ago, I stumbled upon a brief anecdote from the life of Dr. Samuel Johnson, who who lived in England in the 1700s. Samuel Johnson's father kept a stall in the village on market days. And one day he asked his son Samuel to look after the stall. But being a a proud young boy, 
he refused to do so. But years later, he felt a tremendous amount of guilt over that act of defiance towards his father. And his father had died, but he still carried this guilt with him. And so he made his way back to his hometown and he, he, he found his way to the place that his father's stall had been. And he stood there bareheaded in the pouring rain for two hours. Now, why did he do that? Well, because he was trying to make atonement for what he had done. He was trying to alleviate or ease the guilt that was his. But does that actually accomplish anything? Now, the truth is we all have our own ways of doing that or trying to do that, but it's not very effective. So we need a different kind of solution. We need a solution that's outside of ourselves. I like the way Joe Thorne said it when he said, the priesthood of Jesus saves us from the religion of man. See, Jesus' sacrifice saves us from our sin, but it also saves us from all of our futile efforts to save ourselves. And the only way to get off the treadmill of human religion is to trust in the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. Now, this idea is sprinkled all through the book of Hebrews. So listen to a sampling of what we are told. Speaking about Jesus, Hebrews chapter 2 says this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation is an eight-cylinder word. I mean, the, the word means to appease or satisfy. In this context, it means that God's wrath is turned away from us. The sacrifice of Jesus appeases or satisfies God's wrath. Turn now to Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what the first four verses of Hebrews 10 tells us. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Look, that could never satisfy God's requirements. All those sacrifices the priests offered on behalf of the people's sins could not satisfy God's judgment. All they did is serve as a reminder of our sin, our guilt. And then later in Hebrews chapter 10, we read this in verses 11 to 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... And there's one of those big buts of the Bible again. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
Work is finished. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A single offering satisfied the requirements for all time. This is good news. And then verse 18 of chapter 10 says this, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now, when it says there's no longer any offering for sin, what it means is there's no longer any need for an offering for sin. There's nothing we can do that will add to what Jesus has done for us. No amount of penance, no number of sacrifices, no amount of money we could give could do what Jesus has done for us in a once-for-all sacrifice. Ken, this is good news. As the famous him put it my sin oh the bliss of this glorious thought my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and i bear it no more praise the lord praise the lord oh my soul and we ought to praise god for that we ought to praise god for jesus our priest who made a once for all sacrifice on our behalf And the final reason why we need Jesus as our priest is because he never fails and never dies. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 7 now. We read a couple of these verses, but listen to verses 23 to 28. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Jesus never fails, never dies. It's a critical part of why his priesthood is superior to all that came before and all that has come after. The book of Hebrews goes to great lengths to help us understand that Jesus was perfect, that though tempted, he lived a sinless life. In the language of these verses, he was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. We need a priest like that because every other priest will fail. Now, we don't use the title of priest in our tradition, but just think about this in terms of pastors or ministry leaders. You know, I've had conversations with a number of you over the past several months about the revelations of sexual abuse that came about after the death of Ravi Zacharias. Now, I've read several of Ravi's books. I met him once. I emceed an apologetics event that he did back in my Willingdon days. He seemed like a man of solid faith. 
In my limited interactions with him, he seemed like the gentlest of souls. News of his secret life was shocking, devastating to many people who had been impacted by his speaking and his writing. Now look, not all priests or ministry leaders are going to fall or fail so publicly or fail in the same way. But a public fall like that reminds us all or should remind us all that we can't put our hope or our confidence in any spiritual leader other than Jesus. Jesus is the priest we need because Jesus never fails. So look, I can sympathize with you because like the Old Testament priests, I am beset with weakness. But Jesus is perfect. God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf because Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God. Without blemish, without sin. Jesus never fails. But Jesus' priesthood is also superior to everything that came before and everything that has come after because Jesus' priesthood is eternal. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently. The best of our leaders will die. Death is a big problem. Death is the dark cloud that hangs over every institution and every individual. Now, the nation of Israel was led by its prophets, by its priests, and by its kings. Before that, there was a time where the nation of Israel was led by its judges. And we read about that in the book of Judges. The first and best of those judges was a man named Othniel. And I say best because there's no negative note that is recorded about him as there are with the other judges. But still, as you read his account, there's an ominous note at the end of his description. His account ends like this. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. See, the best of Israel's judges died. The best of Israel's prophets died. The best of Israel's priests died. The best of Israel's kings died. Jesus' priesthood is eternal. Though he died, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. Jesus is the priest who never fails and never dies. So in confidence, let us now draw near to the throne of grace. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning and we come because Jesus is our high priest. He has made a sacrifice that has made us in right relationship with you. And we are so grateful for that. We thank you that these truths are not just abstract truths, but they are true for us, that Jesus is at your side pleading on our behalf. So God, we are grateful for that. We are grateful for this high priest who never fails and never dies. And we submit ourselves to him. We pray in his name. Amen.